Paleo Runner podcast is devoted to finding better ways to live, run, train, and eat. I'm your host, Aaron Olson. You can find more information by going to paleorunner.org. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a review. Search for Paleo Runner in iTunes and click ratings and reviews. You can also follow me on facebook.com slash runpaleo or on Twitter at runpaleo. I wanted to take a minute to let you know about a product I've been using called 3Fuel. 3Fuel is a sports drink that gives you fat, protein, and carbohydrates to use as a fuel source. Unlike sugary sports drinks, 3Fuel gets absorbed slowly into your bloodstream to give you sustained energy throughout your workout. If you'd like to give it a try, you can get 10% off by using the coupon code 3FOLSON. Go to paleorunner.org and click 3Fuel at the top of the page. If you're listening through the podcast app on iPhone, click the link displayed on the app right now. My guest today is Dr. Ray McClanahan. Dr. Ray practices podiatry at Northwest Foot and Ankle in Portland, Oregon. He's been a practicing podiatrist for 17 years and has learned that most foot problems can be corrected by restoring natural function. He has also invented a product called Correctos, which helps restore natural natural toe position and movement of the foot. Dr. Ray is also an active runner and athlete. In 1999, he finished 14th in the U.S. National Men's Cross Country Championships and in 2000 had a near Olympic trials qualifying time of 1356 for the 5,000 meters. Dr. Ray, thanks so much for being part of the show. Thank you, Aaron. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, Dr. Ray, I'm really interested in how you got interested in the study of the foot and how you got into podiatry. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? Yeah, definitely. I think like a lot of podiatrists and like a lot of medical professionals who choose sports medicine, I think many of us come to it in an attempt to heal ourselves of our own ails. Uh, I started running fairly seriously in high school and uh, almost immediately started experiencing injuries um, of one form and another, knee problems, foot problems, etc. And uh, my desire at that point was to become the fastest runner that I could be. I watched Chariots of Fire movie and got all fired up and thought, yeah, that's what I want for my life. I want to see if I can qualify for the Olympics. And uh, as you know, as a runner, running well requires that you have sustained periods of uninjured training. And uh, literally, for the greater part of my running career, that was not what I experienced. I had injury after injury. Well, I happened to be at a road race one day, and I uh, was visiting with a gentleman there who I found out happened to be a podiatrist. And I got to tell him a little bit about what was going on with me. And he said, well, you know, you might want to come spend some time in my office and just check out what I do. And that was kind of the beginning of my curiosity about becoming a physician and, more importantly, becoming a sports medicine doc and specializing in the part of the body that I had my my greatest curiosity in, and that happened to be the foot. Mm-hmm. So back in uh, 1995, I was accepted to uh, what was at that time called Pennsylvania College of Podiatric Medicine. It's actually now merged with Temple. And uh, I spent four years in Philadelphia, uh, after which time I came back to Portland and I did a surgical residency. And uh, since that time, I've just been intrigued at how... Uh, how the foot really can heal itself on its own many times if given the uh, appropriate influences. And that's mm-hmm. kind of the nature of my work today that I'm excited to share with you. Okay. So when you were running at that top level um, earlier in your career, were you into the natural minimalist footwear or w- is this something recent that you've picked up since you went to podiatry? I actually was, was dabbling with it probably the last two to three years of my serious running. So it definitely was a piece of my... Um, a piece of my training and racing at that time, I wish I would have encountered it 15 years prior to that because I actually ended up running my faster times in my late 20s and early early 30s. But it was definitely a piece of my transition. At that time, I was reading uh, Dr. William Rossi. And if any of the listeners would like to read about Dr. Rossi, there's four articles on our website 
Uh, he was a podiatrist who, for approximately 35 years, was trying to describe the minimalist movement that we needed to embrace. He was trying to describe natural foot health. And for the most part, podiatry did not embrace his findings. Um, however, if, if you want to read those articles, they're on the website. The first one I started out with in 1999 was, a sh was an article called Why Shoes Make Normal Gait Impossible. And I'm a guy who went clear through podiatry school thinking shoes were good and the more stuff that was in shoes, the better. And uh, looking back on my own early running career, I began experiencing my worst injuries when I started buying into shoe technology and, and orthotic technology. Um, so, yes, minimalism was definitely a part of my uh, racing career, particularly when I ran my fastest times. And uh, I have to credit Dr. Rossi for getting me going in that direction of, of thinking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, that's interesting that, that uh, you started running your faster times uh, when you started going to a more natural, more minimal uh, footwear. You know, some, that's something that I've dealt with, too, as I had a lot of injuries through high school and college. And finally, I, I started going towards a more natural foot strike and a more minimal shoe and the injuries got less and less. So that's that's been one thing that's been really helpful for me. Tell me about what's wrong with most modern shoes on the market. Yeah, happy to. I think there's three design features that all of us would do ourselves well to avoid, mostly because there have been some critical reviews of the design of footwear even recently that have called into question this, the three features that I'm going to mention to you today. And again, here's another article that for those of our listeners who want to really dig into the details, uh, Dr. Craig Richards from Australia did a study about three years ago where he looked at design features of running shoes, trying to figure out when did we come up with the permission control systems and when did we come up with the advanced cushioning systems. And uh, what he found is rather remarkable. Uh, the title of his article is, Are Your Running Shoes are, are your running shoe prescriptions evidence-based? And this article is also on our website for the readers that want to have a look at it. But essentially, after reviewing uh, the literature surrounding how we build running shoes, Dr. Richards came away with the conclusion that the classic running shoe that most of us, even today as we speak and are out there running our miles in, uh, was called a pronition control elevated cushion-heeled running shoe. That was Dr. Richards' um, definition of that shoe. And essentially, that shoe is the shoe that you see on most running shoe walls. The heel to forefoot ratio is a two to one. You've got uh, a toe spring added to the shoe, which is basically a design element where the end of the toe box of the shoe sits on average 15 to 25 degrees above the ball of the foot. Um, and then you couple that with the fact that most running walking shoes, most shoes for, for any developed country, are widest at the ball of the foot and get narrower out towards the ends of the toes. What's rather remarkable in my progress studying runners and studying some of the champion runners, especially from Africa and more recently uh, the Tarahumara Mexican Indians, their feet maintain the same natural foot shape throughout their lives that we sacrifice early on in our life unknowingly, uh, not knowing what the consequences will be. So the answer to your question, Aaron, for our readers, three design features that no scientist, doctor, or researcher can give you credible reasons why any of us should embrace it are elevated heels, toe spring, and tapering toe boxes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one other... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's fine. Go, go ahead. There's one other feature, too, that I find to be quite important, and that is how, how rigid is the sole of the shoe. Mm -hmm. Now, I was trained at a podiatry school that you wanted your sole to be very torsionally rigid, and you only wanted the shoe to bend at the ball of the foot, and you wanted a very stable heel counter. So for approximately 10 years, I made those recommendations uh, without really researching where they came from and not knowing if they were scientifically valid. 
valid or not. Um, so in addition to avoiding heel elevation, avoiding the taper, and avoiding the toe sprain, I also counsel folks who want to take care of their feet to avoid a rigid sole. And you can you can evaluate this on your footwear by grasping the, the back part of the shoe and grasping the front part of the shoe. Since a quarter of all the body's joints are in our feet, it makes sense that we want our feet to be our adapters. Uh, unfortunately, though, if you if you have a rigid sole and your foot is not positioned as nature intended it to be inside of the footwear, you're not really going to be able to make use of the tremendous adaptability of the foot. So I should say there's probably four things we should avoid, Aaron. Tapering toe box, elevated heel, toe spring, as well as a torsionally rigid sole. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, something um, when I was dealing with uh, one of my injuries, actually, I think it was Achilles tendonitis, and I was trying to look up a, a natural way to, to look at this injury, and I found your a video on YouTube where you were talking about how uh, the toes actually have a lot to do with your foot movement, and especially the big toe with creating a natural arch. And if your toes aren't moving properly, it might even affect things at the back of your leg, like your Achilles tendon. And since I modified my footwear to, to uh, allow the toe box to be a little bit bigger, it, that actually was one thing that really helped me get over that injury. And you talk about something called the shoe liner test. What, what, you know, what is that shoe liner test? And, and, and why do so many shoes get so narrow at the end of the toes? What's the, why would they do that? Yeah, um, I've been asking that question ever since I read Dr. Rossi in 1999, and you might be surprised that the answers I get are rarely ever scientific or rarely intellectual answers. They have more to do with um, the fact that this is just the way things have been done. Um, obviously, nobody would argue that the reason why we like that pointed-toe shoe is that's fashionable in our country mm. and, and in other industrialized countries. And the last thing I want any of our listeners to believe is that I'm opposed to fashion. What I am opposed to is fashion features features built into footwear that's designed for exercise. And I think there's a huge difference there. Um, let's talk about the shoe liner test. And let's go back to the piece you just mentioned about how the toes have a relationship to things like Achilles tendon problems. Um, and you're absolutely right. If you pull out your sock liner out of your running shoe and stand on it, um, 90% of the runners, walkers, and hikers we see in our clinic cannot spread their toes and have their whole forefoot on top of their sock liner. In other words, if they stand on the sock liner and spread the toes, toes go well beyond the sock liner, which means that since the sock liner is the exact replica of the shape of the toe box, that means that that person's also not going to be able to spread their toes inside of their running walking footwear. And the reason why this is important is um, there's six muscles on the back of the leg and known as our calf muscle. Um, most of us as runners are very familiar with the outer one, the gastrocnemius, and many of us are also similarly familiar with the soleus. But what is not so familiar that we tried to capture in one of our videos, I think the video is called Thinking Deep with Dr. Ray, is the three other long flexors muscles, which basically start on the back of your calf, just below your knee, and they actually share the same connections with your outer two calf muscles as they course along the back of your leg. So I see an awful lot of people coming into my clinic with a previous diagnosis of Achilles tendonitis, only to find out it's really not their Achilles at the problem. It's actually one of the deeper flexors, uh, such as tibialis posterior or flexor hallucis longus or the third deep flexor, flexor digitorum longus. And the really neat thing about my work, Aaron, is most of what I teach people, I can show them with their own anatomy in the clinic. In other words, I'm not relying on them to believe in some kind of biomechanical expertise that I have. I show them how these design features that we're talking about in the footwear will put their own soft issues in a uh, disadvantageous, unnatural position and will, will eventually end up adding to the injury that brings them into the clinic. Mm-hmm. So the sock liner that you're talking about, just in case people don't know, it's, it's basically the insole of your shoe and... Once I found that, I found that test that you recommended. I started taking the 
the insole out of all my shoes and there was basically no I mean, I do have a slightly wider foot, but there was basically no shoe that I could find where my foot actually fit into on top of the sock liner. And so that would make sense why I might have had some Achilles problems. Um, at the time, there was only a couple of shoes, the, the Five Fingers and the Ultras. Have you found any other shoemakers that have a wider toe box? I haven't. What's really neat about it, and in kind of in response to the market demand, even some of the major players are coming out with better toe boxes. Um, if, and what you just said is so valuable. I started sharing this with my clients probably 10 years ago, and most of them would stand on their sock liner, and they would look at me, and they would say, where does such a shoe exist? Um, so about five years ago, before Ultra, before Vivan, Vivan Five Figures, and some of the others we'll talk about, we literally did a lot of our running, walking, and hiking in Crocs, mm. mostly because Crocs were one of the footwear selections out there that were more naturally shaped. Um, however, I'm happy to report um, our work and the recovery of runners is getting much, much easier these days as you can add to the Ultras and Vibrant Five Fingers lens. Uh, you can add to them New Balance has some minimalist stuff out there. Brooks is moving kind of in the right direction. Um, Sakami has a Hattori. Oh my, there's probably, oh, I could say maybe 20 to 25 different shoes out there that fit this natural foot health criteria. And for our our listeners, I might encourage them to consider having a look at the shoe list that we have on our website. Mm -hmm. um, we have recently added a certification system where if people pull the sock liner out of the shoe and they've got their correct toe silicone toe spacer on and their whole foot is not on top of that sock liner, we're not going to recommend that shoe to them, um, except if they're going to go to the wedding on the weekend. We're certainly not going to recommend they go run, walk, or hike in that shoe. Um, but the answer to your question, Aaron, is there's probably 25 to 30 different brands out there. In fact, uh, Soft Star is another one, a local Corvallis, Oregon brand. Um, there's a there's a bunch of different Hirachi companies out there, Bronca Sandals, Luna Sandals, Zero Shoes. Um, so this is a good time to be an American if you're interested in strengthening your feet and if you're interested in natural foot positioning uh, because it's getting easier all the time as more and more players come into the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about a little bit about arch support? And, you know, a lot of people will go to a running store to look for a new pair of shoes, especially if they're beginners and they're told that they need a shoe maybe they're, they'll say okay I'm going to watch you walk down the aisle here and uh, most often they'll say okay you, you're going to need some arch support what is the role of the arch and do we need as much arch support as we're told yeah, that's probably one of my favorite things to discuss with runners um, because most of us have so thoroughly been conditioned to think of that criteria when we go into the store. Um, do we have a hyperpronating or overpronating foot? Do we have a neutral foot? Or do we have a high-arched, rigid foot? And up until recently, or even today, if you go into many shoe stores, exactly what you stated is going to happen. Folks are going to get put on the treadmill. They're going to watch how they walk and run with the idea that if they can identify how much arch movement is going on, that somehow they can and tie that unique foot to a particular shoe on the wall. Um, that notion has since been thoroughly disproven by many sources, including a very good military study. In fact, most of us who are aware of the literature have taken to borrowing the term that one of the researchers used as he described this system. That system is a sports myth. Mm -hmm. There's no science to substantiate it. As a matter of fact, in that same military study, they purposefully put different shoes on people's feet that were not in keeping with that criteria. And across the board, the more structure 
structure, the more rigid, the more motion control shoe, it was more injurious to everybody who wore it. So what's interesting about arch support, and again, we've got an article and a video on the website um, that I would love to encourage our, our listeners to access, and that article is actually called Arch Support. And in that article, we talk about what exactly is an arch and uh, where does the support for an arch come from? And we like to use known architectural principles of bridges because, uh, honestly, your, foot, your feet are an awful lot like a couple of bridges. And nobody would argue that bridges are capable of sustaining large loads if both ends of that bridge are flat and level and stable. Um, in fact, that kind of a configuration gets more stable the more it's loaded. However, if you take that very same analogy and apply it to the foot, which is a type of bridge, you'll quickly realize that the shoes that have been in the marketplace for 20 to 30 years now have never allowed the natural arches of the foot to ever be naturally positioned. And what I mean by that is when, it, when we talk about arch support, we talk about two support ends, just like a bridge. We talk about the back support end or the rear foot, which is your heel bone, your calcaneus. And we talk about the front support end, which here's where here's where a lot of misinformation occurs because most, most people who talk about feet seem to just believe that feet stop at the ball of the foot and they kind of neglect to understand the whole foot which is all the way out to the ends of the toes. The front support end of the arch is not only your five metatarsal head, it's 14 toe bones which should be flat and level with the ball of the foot and with the heel. That's where you start to get true arch support. Unfortunately, as you as you start to look at the shoes that are out there and we start to use the, the two to one that's been in almost, shoe, almost all shoes where the heel is twice as high and then you start to look at the toe spring, you quickly realize that neither of the natural support ends of a human running foot are ever allowed to achieve what they were designed to achieve in most trees that are out there on the market today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so ironic. I mean, if you look at a child's foot, it's the toes are really splayed out. And I, I guess they kind of they kind of look funny. And, and then children's shoes are they don't I mean, they don't look funny. But compared to a adult's foot, they're they're usually more splayed. And they get these shoes that are kind of like moccasins, and they're really rounded at the end. But then it seems like as we grow older, we start to get shoes that are more and more pointed and a lot of people's toes become more and more pointed and might even suffer from things like bunions and stuff like that. Is that a is a bunion a problem because of footwear or is that a genetic thing? Well, that's the multi-million dollar question, um, and I'm currently reviewing a study that's trying to ask that question right now, and I'll touch on that briefly. But your observation is good, Aaron. I've got a seven- and a nine-year-old daughter, and so I've gone through the whole shoe-buying process with them since birth, and I did notice at birth they had that natural wide splay that's captured in the footprint of every newborn baby. Um, but for our listeners, if you're at a water park or you're anywhere where large volumes of children are barefoot, it's a very compelling observation to look at children up till age two or three, maybe four, most of them have that nice splayed forefoot wider than the ball. Then you start to notice as kids start getting into their seventh, eighth year and into adolescence, you start to see what you just pointed out, Aaron. Their feet take on the shapes of the shoes. And most definitely, uh, that's where bunions begin. That's where hammer toes begin. Even though some of the studies out there say there's a hereditary component, what I see to the people who say it's hereditary is um, there may be some elements that are hereditary, but control for the footwear uh, if you want the science to be credible. In other words, the study I'm reviewing right now is a Framingham study uh, on bunion where they talk about the hereditable feature, but I'm halfway through the study and I haven't seen anywhere where they've mentioned footwear. Mm. So when I treat people with bunions every day, they do tell me there are other family members, but I'm also careful to ask what kind of footwear did those other family members wear. And across the board, it's cowboy boots for men, it's pointed narrow dress shoes for women. So bunions are a progressive dislocation 
application of the big toe joint. People are not born with bunions. Um, bunions occur progressively over time for exactly what you just pointed out, which is we train our feet to be shaped like shoes, and eventually they do. Eventually, we <laughs> take our shoe off, and our foot looks like a shoe. Mm-hmm. And it's a way bigger thing than people realize, and it catches up to us very, very slowly. And it's only in about the fifth or sixth decade when somebody finally is breaking down sufficiently enough to come to see me, um, where we address these things. We have them stand on the sock liner. We show them these muscular imbalances that they've developed. And so, yeah, it, it all starts early. And it's rather remarkable that the baby's shoes are shaped like a baby's foot, but not much not much after age two or three, then they become smaller versions of adult shoes and the, de- the deformation begins. Okay. Tell me a little bit about this product that you invented called Correct Toes. Um, how did you come up with that idea? It's, it's a really interesting product that kind of allows your toes to be more splayed out like a, in a natural position. Yeah, I uh, I was suffering through part of my running career with what's known as overlapping toe syndrome. Uh, another way of saying that is that's a bunion along with a hammer toe. Uh, on both of my feet, my second toe was literally on top of my big toes. And I, I look back at my running shoes. I wore my running shoes way too small all through my college career. I used to wear size 9. I wear size 12 now. Mm. Um, but the real reason why I developed this product was during my surgical residency, I was noticing the structure that we were cutting to try to make a big toe go straight. And I began wondering and talking to my physical therapy friends if it were possible for us to, uh, instead of cutting these structures, if we could take our time and remodel them with progressively applied forces. And so I began this experiment, probably started in 1998 or so, where I started putting little silicone splints in between my big toe and my second toe. And then I started putting them between my fourth and fifth toes. And I started noticing not only did I run better, I didn't have as much knee pain and back pain, but I also noted that, noticed after a time that I was developing spaces in between my first and second toes, uh, which thrilled me because I didn't want to have an operation. What's really remarkable about most surgeons is most of them, in spite of the pride we have in our work, don't want to have surgery on our own body. Hmm. Um, so I decided to try to come up with another system of bunion reversal just to see if whether or not it truly was something that only could be corrected with surgery. And uh, I, got, I got to talking to my runners about it, and they were open to it. The problem was not whether or not we could slay the toes and whether or not they felt better. The problem was there were very few shoes out there. So we went about the process of remodeling our shoes by cutting up the uppers, uh, relacing them, leaving sock liners out, etc. Anything that we could do to provide more volume for us to spread our toes. And even though it was such a subtle little change to separate our toes, the results were nothing short of dramatic in my running population. That's mostly what I do is treat runners here in Portland, Oregon. Um, many of those runners got over chronic injury and many of them got away from using the orthotics and the big shoes and so forth. So eventually we got to the point where we were putting these splints in between all of our toes. And although it worked, we all kind of got tired of a few things. We got tired of the silicone moving around when our foot got warm and sweaty. We got tired of the, it was basically a mini ritual we had to go through just to get ready to go out the door for a run. Mm-hmm. Um, it was at that point I sat down with the designer and said, can we can we take all these pieces and put them together? And furthermore, can we make it customizable because everybody's feet are different? Um, and that, that was what we started back in probably 2000 maybe and uh, it's it's really been remarkable to see the testimonials and to see the before and after pictures proving that bunions are not a, are not a bone growth that requires a surgical operation. Bunions are a progressive dislocation of the big toe and sometimes the fifth toe caused primarily by footwear. So if you understand those uh, principles and you can get appropriate footwear that you can wear something like her toes in, there's a very good likelihood that if you still have flexibility in your foot, you, 
you can actually reverse a bunion or tailor's bunion without actually having to have an operation. Mm. Yeah, you know, I I found those very interesting, and I'm actually thinking about picking up a pair because I've started to develop a slight bunion on one on my left foot. Um, but I typically wear the five fingers. Do you think that the there will ever be a shoe where this could be incorporated into the shoe, like maybe separate? Because uh, it seems like bunions are a pretty big deal for a lot of people. I've seen um, a lot of runners deal with them. And do you think that could ever be something down the road where you could have like a corrective shoe? Yeah, in fact, there have been um, examples of that over the last probably 20 or 30 years. I want to say Nike came out with a shoe. I want to call it the Rift, maybe, or the Rift Valley. Oh, yeah. Where they actually had a separate big toe piece. And there have been some Japanese shoe designs to do the same thing. Um, So definitely, I think that that kind of design would be intelligent. The only problem that I've seen in this work in straightening out people's toes is you wouldn't believe in how many different size toes there are out there. Mm. Um, I've got some very large, tall men that have little tiny tiny, teeny toes. I've got some very small women who have very large, thick toes. So I guess, Mike, although I hope for that kind of a shoe design to come uh, in the future, I think it would be difficult for us to put a standardized toe corrector in the shoe and expect it to fit the majority. Right, right. So if you if you try running with these, what is that? Does it, is it comfortable? Is it something that you have to get used to? You definitely have to get used to it. It is, it is comfortable. In fact, it's a lot more comfortable than most people envision. People look at the device and um, it looks uncomfortable. And it just the, the immediate gut instinct is there's no way that's going to feel good on my foot. Um, however, it's made of medical-grade silicone, which means that once it gets next to your skin, it kind of gets a little warm and malleable. And if a person takes the appropriate amount of time to get used to the product, um, we have several thousand people running, walking, hiking, including myself. Um, the break-in process is really critical. Uh, in the Cryptos packaging, is a little handout where we talk about the nature of the project. We talk about how to break in the product. We typically start with 20 to 30 minutes the first day and, and call it good after that, because even though we're moving people's feet back into natural alignment, most most runners haven't been there for a long time, if not decades. Mm-hmm. So we, we really want to take our time uh, getting the, all the little tiny muscles that are in between each of the toes that most Americans really don't have much awareness of. In fact, many of us can't even use those muscles because we, we never do. They need sufficient time to wake up, develop tensile strength, and, um, and get used to us using them. So we typically go half an hour the first day, hour the next day. We typically don't have people running them for probably three or four weeks. We just have them kind of cruise around, do some light walking, get used to them in their home. But by all means, many people have set their PRs. We get testimonials frequently. People can't believe how much better they run, how much more balanced they feel, faster. And these are all things that any one of us who run, you know, we, we want this. We want, we don't want to be injured. We want to get our PRs and we want to be able to run until we're old. Mm-hmm. And this has been one small piece that's helped people to do that. Yeah, you know, that's, that's interesting that people are getting faster by using these because I would think by allowing your big toe to function more naturally, you might have more propulsion at push-off. Do you think that could be a uh, part of the why people might have been setting PRs? I certainly think so. In fact, in keeping with that piece of it, if our listeners want to look at a four-minute video that's on our website, it's called Natural Foot Wisdom, and it talks about what happens to the overall structure of your foot when you reapproximate the great toe. But definitely, um, the term that comes to mind is a term that uh, an Air Force doctor friend of mine, Dr. Mark Kukazella, uh, you've probably heard of him. He's the uh, director of the Natural Running Center. He likes to use the term elastic recoil. Mm. And he has shared with me that when he wears his correct 
varicose, you get that extra little bit of elastic recoil. He calls it a little bit of an extra pop um, versus when he races without his correct hooks. He notices he doesn't really get that spring out of his foot. So I definitely think it has to do with um, harnessing the power of the flexor hallucis longus, which is, again, one of those deep calf muscles that most of us don't really ever make full use of because it's never in its proper alignment to pull properly back on the, on the great toe. I also think that part of the performance benefit is if your forefoot spreads out as you load it, that's a much more stable construct than what we're doing in our pointed-toed shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and essentially, the more balanced platform of push-off you've, you've got, your more proximal muscles like your quads and your hamstrings and your hip flexors and so forth are going to be able to do a better job of what they're intended to do because the foundation is secure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've talked about a lot of ways to try to avoid surgery. Um, is, is surgery ever an option that people might need to consider? Definitely. I see a couple people a week um, that it's not just a matter of getting them into minimal shoes and wearing toe separators and strengthening their feet. There literally are folks that need operation. Um, I see a couple a week. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a situation where uh, I'll give you an example. Um, I used to do a lot of bunion operations and I didn't have the conversation that you and I are having. And I would see those people variably at some point in the future with their bunion back. Mm. So for those people that need an operation, and there are those that do, I encourage them to implement the strategies that you and I are talking about post-operatively, mm-hmm. which, which oftentimes will guarantee their success. But let's, I'll just give you an example. Um, I recently saw somebody who was probably six years old, and by the time they came to see me, there was no mobility in their great toe, meaning that I can't put correct toes on and have them wear a better shoe and, and their foot is just going to get well. Um, there's a certain point at which the ability to use the kind of system that we're talking about today is no longer going to be effective. So definitely... Um, people still do need surgery. Um, I feel like the system helps a lot of people prevent surgery. And more importantly, for those people that do need surgery, this is a great way postoperatively to guarantee that your results stay. Mm-hmm. Too many surgeries get performed where people get sent right back into the same shoes that they had prior to surgery, and, and then the problems are bound to recur. Mm-hmm. And so for some runners that might be listening, um, is surgery something that sh- they should fear? People who get surgery on their foot, what is the recovery usually like? Can they usually resume running? once it's sealed up? It all depends, and that's a really good question. I would say uh, as a person who's done a lot of surgery and a person who evaluates um, other surgeons' work, I feel like oftentimes the expectations for healing are a little bit exaggerated. In other words, I think it takes people longer to heal than the average post-operative protocol. In other words, most of us who operate on the feet and ankles are conditioned to tell people, oh, in about four to six weeks, things are going to be good. Um, surgery oftentimes takes a lot longer to get well. I also find oftentimes um, people's expectations are not met in terms of their foot might swell for a long time their foot might develop scar tissue, or it might not correct the problem. Um, so I guess for our listeners, I would I would encourage each of you to pursue every other option prior to that and be careful to get second and sometimes third opinions on your condition because there's many times when I'll meet a person who's been told they must have an operation uh, and for whatever reason they decided not to, and they go ahead and get well. I'll give you an example. I saw a runner today who moved up from California recently. A previous MRI showed that one of his tendons was torn and a sports doctor said, you must get this surgically repaired or you'll never run again. And that's a that's like a horrible nightmare for a runner, as you know. Never run again? Are you kidding me? Um, what this gentleman did, though, is he sought out the counsel of somebody else who gave him a second opinion and said, you're going to require a significant post-operative healing time after the operation anyway. Why not take it now? Why not just rest your body and see what happens? Mm-hmm. Well, ultimately, in, in this gentleman's situation, he never did have the operation. He healed naturally, and he's back to running. So I feel like there's too much surgery going on, and I don't 
don't feel like there are enough of the prevention elements covered like we're covering today. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would show people, in my estimation, probably less than 5% of the people I see day in and day out actually really need an operation. Okay. Well, Dr. Ray, it's been great talking with you today. If people want to go and find out more about your way of looking at the foot and way of preventing injuries, where can they find out more? Yeah, I would direct them to www.nwfootankle.com, nwfootankle.com. Um, you can also get to our site, uh, correcttoes.com, and there's a wealth of information there uh, in terms of people can look up their specific medical conditions, they can look the literature that we've gathered, some of which we've touched on tonight, and they can certainly also uh, contact our clinic with questions and concerns. Okay. Well, Dr. Ray, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Um, it's been a fascinating talk, and I've, I've learned a lot. And so thanks so much for being part of the show. Thank you, Aaron. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to another episode of Paleo Runner Podcast. For more information, go to paleorunner.org. Thanks for listening.